When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy today. Use our link expressvpn.com slash missionlog and you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash missionlog. This episode of Mission Log is also sponsored by Helix Sleep. Take the Helix Sleep quiz and get up to $200 off your new mattress and two free pillows at helixsleep.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 400, Honor Among Thieves. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we look over an episode of Star Trek, and we size it up and see if we can trust it. Then we'll tell you what we think. Hey, 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 Norman. Norman. It's cool, man. I know this episode. Oh, you like it? I, I, I mean, I'm saying I know this episode. Just be cool, Okay. Cool. We'll get into Honor Among Thieves in a moment, but first let me tell all of you how to reach us, you know, if we need to discuss business. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter, then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Then send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, let's do the business. John Champion with this week's trivia. All right, trivia among thieves. Uh, We have a story by Philip Kim. All right, I love Hollywood stories like this. Philip was an assistant to the producers on DS9, um, and at some point a production assistant, just depending on where you read his story there. Um, By the way, for people who haven't worked in the business, uh, production assistant, that is the gopher. That, That is the person who does everything. And you need somebody to go get you a cup of coffee, the PA does it. You need somebody to move that sandbag, the PA does it. So that is what Philip Kim was doing for a number of months on DS9. He pitched this story. They bought it. And he uh, has one more story coming up that they bought too. He also managed to work on Star Trek New Voyages, the fan series, for a while too. Except, uh, well, I told you all that in this story really wasn't close to Philip's original story. I mean, we know how it happens, right? You know, it goes through a number of writers and producers, and it gets honed into something else. So over the course of many months, 
Philip pitched a lot of stories. The first one that he pitched had to do with Jake and Nog, with Jake saving a girl's life, and uh, she's tied up in the Orion Syndicate, and now Jake has that to juggle, and you've got these, basically like these mobsters making Jake's life really easy, and he's loving it, but he's in with the wrong crowd. So the producers came back to that pitch and completely changed it, because the thing that they fixated on, the thing that they liked was using the phrase Orion Syndicate. So so there you go. <laughs> That's what they remembered. They said, yeah, we liked your pitch. Now it's something totally different. Um, Rene Echeverria is the one who got the teleplay credit. And it, it was Ron Moore and Iris Stephen Bear, of course, who kind of shaped it from that original pitch to what the story became. It was directed by Alan Eastman, not a name that we've seen on Star Trek until now, although he had done some genre directorial work on TV before with Dracula, Poltergeist the Legacy, Sliders, and more. He also directed a couple of episodes of Voyager, but after this, he will direct a full dozen episodes for another Gene Roddenberry property, Andromeda. Now, let's talk about guest stars. We meet a handful of new faces on Farius. We'll focus first on the good guy, Chadwick, played by Michael Harney. It's the only Star Trek credit for Michael, but he sure does have a lot of other genre credits to his name. He's turned up on Buffy, Project Blue Book, and Space Command, and his voice has been used more than a few times in Star Wars video games. We welcome back Leland Crook as the Vorta Gelnon. We first met him last week in One Little Ship, which was actually filmed an episode prior, so there would have been a little more of a gap in production between the times that we saw him. It's his final performance on the series, but we will see him in a guest role on Enterprise. Working with Gelnon is Ramus, played by Joseph Culp. If the name sounds familiar, it should. He is the son of the late Robert Culp of I Spy and Greatest American Hero fame. In fact, Joseph's first role was on Greatest American Hero, and he's been working ever since. And he played the role of Archie Whitman, Dick Whitman's father in Mad Men. Spoiler, Dick Whitman is really Don Draper. <gasps> then, oh, I, what? I, sorry, sorry. <laughs> You all should have watched it by now. Damn. Then there are the hoods. Uh, John Davis Chandler is Flith, and in or out of the fairy and makeup, you probably can recognize him from a ton of movie and TV roles. Uh, the Outlaw, Josie Wales, Adventures in Babysitting, Adam-12, Gunsmoke. Heck, he even shows up six times as different characters on Fantasy Island. Surprisingly, this is his final professional on-screen credit. John passed away in 2010 at the age of 75. Carlos Carrasco plays Kroll. We've pretty much only seen Carlos only under heavy alien makeup. He was a Klingon in the House of Quark. Well, he was actually DeGore in that one. He'll be a Klingon again on DS9, then a different alien role on Voyager for a guest appearance there. Okay, finally, the big moment, astronaut Alan Carter. Here he is making an appearance on DS9. Well, okay, not, not really. It, it's, it's Nick Tate 
playing Bilby, and it's hard not to think of him as Alan Carter from the stylish Jerry and Sylvia Anderson TV show Space 1999. Nick has been with us on Trek before when we covered the season four episode of TNG called Final Mission. Now, interestingly, Nick was not the first choice for this role. The producers had cast Charles Hallahan as Bilby, but Charles died suddenly of a heart attack shortly before filming began. Nick said he was honored to step into the role. Have we actually done this 400 times? Have you listened to us do this 400 times? Really? Prologue. Open in a seedy bar on a seedy planet, Farius Prime. There's a Bolian working there, a couple of guys playing Pyramid, I mean uh, Tongo. And there are three 'er ne'er-do-wells sitting at the back table talking about how Ramus, their boss, isn't going to be happy with their latest job. The man in the middle here is Liam Bilby, human, and in charge of this small lot. He's with Flith, a local Farian hood, and Kroll, an alien of some other sort. Also in the bar, eavesdropping is our own chief, Miles O'Brien. When Bilby says he's hungry, he sends Kroll to use a communications terminal to call up Uber Eats. Since these guys are criminals, though, Kroll uses a small electronic device that he snaps to his neck to access the interface. He's going to crack the code here to bill their delivery to some city service, presumably not having to pay the driver a tip either. When Miles sees what they're doing, he activates a little device that spikes Kroll. In other words, shoots a terrible electric feedback into his neck appliance and shocks him. But O'Brien leaps up to help and even offers to fix the little device for a price. Bilby says he'd better just fix it. And bring it back tomorrow morning, Mr. Connolly, O'Brien introduces himself. Outside in an alleyway, Chief O'Brien meets the mysterious figure from Starfleet Intelligence named Chadwick. While Chadwick doesn't approve of the unnecessary risk in the little setup with spiking Kroll, he is impressed that the Chief has made contact with the Orion Syndicate so soon. Other recruited agents haven't been so lucky. If all goes well... O'Brien can go back home to DS9 once this mission is over. They've set up a cover for him as a fix-it man who's down on his luck. If he gets found out before he can find out who their Starfleet informant is, the syndicate will kill him, just like they did the last five operatives. Act 1. The mood on DS9 is different. With Chief gone, things aren't working quite as well as they should. Security sensors, fire suppression, even a turbo lift, nothing works right when O'Brien is away. Dr. Bashir pushes Captain Sisko a little. It's his worry over the station's systems not working, but it's also his worry over his friend. Regardless, Sisko can't say a word about O'Brien's whereabouts. Back on Farius, Connolly shows up with the repaired interface for Kroll, just as he was told. It's not like Bilby is suspicious, but he has been doing a little digging about Connolly, even figuring out where he lives. Time for them to go for a little walk. 
They arrive at Bilby's apartment, where Chester the cat makes his presence known. Bilby gets right to it by producing a Klingon disruptor, which immediately makes O'Brien thinks he's about to get shot. No such thing. These disruptors were a bad bunch, and Bilby needs someone who can repair them. He doesn't know why his boss wants them, but you don't ask questions when Ramus gives you a job. O'Brien says he can fix them, and Bilby opens up to him a little. It seems that in his digging, he found out that Connolly did some time, and he just seems like a guy who can't get a break. He even shares some cakes his wife back in New Sydney sent him. Bilby's family is back where it's safer, and he asks Connolly if he has a family. The chief... Staying undercover says no, to which Bilby says he should. It's the most important thing. In fact, he sends all of his earnings back to his family, the part that doesn't go to the higher-ups, that is. Bilby explains, Ramus is above him in the organization. Kroll and Flith are below him. If Connolly fixes the disruptors, he could be a part of this too. Just depends if Bilby can trust him and then he offers some more of his wife's cake. O'Brien declines, which seems to offend Bilby. So, as Connolly, O'Brien speaks up. He actually doesn't like the cake. It's dry. And Bilby laughs. Kroll and Flith lie all the time, saying they love the cake. Then Bilby looks at Chester the cat and says he found an honest man. Act 2. O'Brien picks up some disruptor parts from his contact, courtesy of the Klingon ambassador who just happens to be on Farius. Nobody knows what the disruptors are for, not even Bilby, but at least they can go along with the ruse. He completes the repairs, and Bilby and his crew are suitably impressed. When they start asking questions where the parts came from, though, O'Brien has to cover for himself and say he stole them. In doing so, he says he was covering for Bilby, though, just to give him plausible deniability in case he ever got caught. A touching gesture, which only endears Bilby to him more. The gratitude even makes its way back to Connolly with a new suit, courtesy of Bilby. Then it's time to confront the salesman who delivered the three broken disruptors. You know where this is going. Three criminals who paid for bad merchandise? Yeah. Bilby ends that guy. But he confesses to Connolly later that his life in crime isn't what he expected for himself. It's just been a difficult life, and the organization has given him opportunities he would otherwise never have had. Power and protection come along with it. Heck, they even had a guy in Starfleet. Oh, really? Yeah, but Bilby isn't sharing too much more about him, except that he's a guy Ramus met on Ryza last year and since then has given up all the names of Starfleet's undercover operatives. Anywho, uh, how would Connolly like to come with Bilby to New Sydney and meet his family? His daughter has a birthday coming up, you know. This conversation interrupted by a message from Ramus. He wants to see Bilby. Now. Then, at the bar, it's Ramus himself, a Farian guy, and he's introducing Bilby to his boss, a Vorta named Gelnon. But who's this new guy? Oh, that's Connolly, and Bilby says he's cool. In fact, he knows him. That's the code. That means Bilby just witnessed for Connolly, and it's his life on the line if anything happens. Now that that's out of the way, Gelnon has a job for Bilby. He's the one who got the disruptors. He's going to use them. In time. 
meeting his contact later, O'Brien shares the information about the Starfleet informant and about the Dominion now being involved with the Orion Syndicate. So, the Chief's return to DS9 will be delayed until he knows the rest of what's going on. Act 3. Back at the bar on that comm station, O'Brien is guiding Kroll through an online bank heist. Uh, just some money the Bank of Bolius won't miss. For his troubles, Bilby gives Connolly a Farian woman whose affections were negotiated. The chief politely declines, though, and makes up the story about having uh, a girlfriend as of a few days ago. Uh, the other woman is dismissed, and that leaves O'Brien to make up some stuff about his new girlfriend, to which Bilby reminds him that he should really be looking to start a family. He can read people, and he can tell Connolly has a good heart, not like how Kroll and Flith first thought of him. As Bilby anticipates moving up in the organization, he'd like to bring Connolly along with him. It's friendly, thoughtful, paternal. Meeting his contact again, O'Brien tries to explain more about his relationship with Bilby. The man witnessed for him, and now he's concerned about what happens to the guy once he's gone. Chadwick just says to do his job. Bilby will be well cared for in a Federation prison. Act 4. Ramus and Galanon are waiting for Bilby and his men in the bar, and Galanon has something on his mind— he thinks there's a traitor in the bunch, one who's been taking more than his fair share. And Galadon's trying to figure out who. He just kind of sniffs it out, intuits that it's Connolly. But the bartender shoots Flith. Boom! Dead Farian on the floor. Good thing Bilby didn't witness for him, or he'd be dead too. So, down to business. Galadon and Ramus explain that they want Bilby to assassinate the Klingon ambassador and with those Klingon disruptors as the weapon of choice. It'll look like a political assassination from inside the Klingon Empire. The ambassador advocates breaking with the Federation alliance, while Gowron does not. If this looks like Gowron's call, it'll dissolve support in the alliance anyway, a political advantage for the Dominion. O'Brien reports back to Chadwick immediately, and his informant says he will immediately warn those who need to know which basically means Bilby and his men will get caught and killed. To O'Brien, it's a betrayal, and he punches out Chadwick to go warn Bilby. Arriving at his apartment, O'Brien gives his best Admiral Akbar impression as a warning. It's a trap. Act 5. Oh, sure, a trap. And how would Connolly know? Because what if Connolly is actually working for Starfleet Intelligence? O'Brien gives up the game, out of concern for his friend. Bilby is in disbelief at first, but as the reality sets in, he realizes he's dead, one way or another. If the Klingons catch him, he's dead. If the Syndicate realizes who Connolly is and that Bilby witnessed for him, they'll kill him. If he escapes to a Federation prison, the Syndicate will come after his family. Connolly was too good to be true, and Bilby wanted to believe him. The only alternative Bilby has is to kill O'Brien. But that's what a smart man would do, he says. But he's not that smart. O'Brien is apologetic. He was just sent there to find out who the mole is inside Starfleet. It wasn't about Bilby. All Bilby can say is to look after Chester. When Bilby walks toward the door, he asks O'Brien if he has a family. The chief says yes. 
and Bilby replies that that's the most important thing. Sometime later, Chief O'Brien is back on Deep Space Nine telling Dr. Bashir what happened. He formed a bond with Bilby, and he essentially sent the man to his death, as if he had pulled the trigger himself. Bashir doesn't really seem to get it. At least the comfort he's trying to offer to his friend is more professional. He was acting out of duty, and that's the truth. Glad to have his friend back, Bashir leaves O'Brien's quarters, and once he's gone, Chester, the cat, leaps into the chief's lap. The end. You know, John, I actually, I thought I was a pretty good judge of character, too. Mm -hmm. And um, it turns out that I am, because that's why I'm here doing the show with you. Oh, that's, oh, see, uh, that's what I I could say the same thing about you. Don't cross me. (laughs) I won't. I won't. And um, your cake is delicious? Yeah, it's delicious, Norman. It is delicious. Yes. And um, low calorie. Yeah. By the way. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though. Don't look at your stash of peanut butter cups because maybe a couple are missing because those are delicious. All right. We're going to have to have a talk after the show. Hey, uh, let's let's get to our observations here. So first of all, Bolians. I'm so glad we are hearing and seeing more about Bolians in general. Bartending is a good gig uh, for them. Well, kind of good, depending on who you're working for. And the Bank of Bolius. I think Honestly, the DS9 writers, they just like writing and saying that phrase. And and it's kind of nice that we're all well past our stereotype of them all being barbers, though I just, I still like to think of Mott out there cutting hair. Nothing can stop him. Remember in our headcanon that Mr. Mott is also bullion intelligence. Mm, so mm-hmm. yep. he's getting all of that information yep. from, you know, like barbers like are like bartenders. Sometimes your captains will just open up to him. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Okay, the big question in the room, the 800-pound targ in the room, because <laughs> I'm going to open up this with both photon torpedo ports open. Yes. Why was O'Brien working with Starfleet intelligence in this episode exactly? So many of you know, many of the listeners yeah. out there know that John and I watch these episodes several times because we do have to do our research for the show. John does the mm-hmm. trivia. We do the write-ups and things of that nature. In doing so... Not once do I remember exactly why Chadwick has O'Brien on a very short leash to work for Starfleet Intelligence. So that really starts off the entire things that make you go, what? (laughs) In this episode, (laughs) right? So uh, I feel bad for Starfleet Intelligence if there's not another person who can repair things. That That seems like a gross oversight at Starfleet Intelligence, or if you had five of them and you sent them all to Farius and they all got caught and killed. Like, there is a serious personnel problem at Starfleet Intelligence. Yeah, yeah and, and the, the, the Chadwick... Oh, believe me, we, we have so many comments about this very premise. You, you know, the, the Chadwick-O'Brien relationship, every few minutes, cut to... <laughs> Chadwick and O'Brien, like in the alley right behind the bar. And he said, you know, don't take any unnecessary risk. Dude, you literally meet all the time and you were calling O'Brien by his real name. Like O'Brien over here <laughs> under the same lamp for the last two weeks over oh, here. Oh, man. Oh, man. I guess he was kind of an early concept for Section 31 because I don't think that we've seen Section 31 yet. I, I kind of, I was wondering about that. Like, is that something that you could in your head canon kind of 
slip in and just say like, yeah, yeah okay, it's it's thirty one adjacent, you know. Yeah. And regardless, look whether you call it Starfleet intelligence or Section thirty one or whatever, do they just do this? Do they just go around grabbing people, even non-coms like O'Brien, and just say, well, now you're in this dangerous situation? Chadwick even says, like, I realize you didn't exactly volunteer for this. <laughs> so so is this something that just happened to anyone in Starfleet at any time? Because this yeah. is a serious strike against joining Starfleet. Why do you think so many operatives were axed in this episode? Because they're not trained operatives. <laughs> Thank you. Right? Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Where's you the look 20... like an operative. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Where's the yeah. 24th century James Bond when you need him? Okay. Okay. So let's go. Let's, let's kind of like change the momentum. Of okay. I, I, I think we're going to come back to it. But yes. Yes. Fine. Okay. Something I actually did like, and I, I noticed that at, at first, is when... Uh, the alien just used the implants in the back of their neck and then used it on the on the comm panel to order their... I love how you say this. You're so clever. You're such a clever writer. Over their Uber. Uh, <laughs> order their Uber and food. Look, you know, I, I had dinner it. on my mind, okay? <laughs> it's so funny, though, but I thought that was neat that uh, we saw that in... Uh, what was it? A, um, a simple investigation. Yes, right. With Arissa. Yeah. And it was that same kind of technology. And I thought that was like, okay, yeah. all right. They're going back to the Orion Syndicate that apparently don't have Orions in it, but that's beside the point. So they're going back to the Orion Syndicate and using technology, which is, is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that was a, a nice little bit of consistency. I, I love that they yeah. do a thing like that. Now, look, I do appreciate that the chief is great at his job on DS9. That's awesome. They should all be proud of him. He should be proud of his work. But seriously, does everything fall apart when he's gone? But we don't know how long he's gone. That That's one very weird thing about this episode, just being that DS9 is a very consistent show, particularly with time and how stories build on each other. We have no idea how long he's been gone in this. Does he not have a team of people who can also do his job? Have things not gotten better in six years? Because we've discovered Rom's amazing talents, and I realize he's only one person, but the chief is only one person, too. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it would have made more sense, I think, if it was just like a couple of small things. But these are some pretty severe technical issues that they were having, especially the turbo lift that goes into ops. But I do agree with Worf. I know, yeah. shocking people. Everyone take a drink when I say that. <laughs> but when he says, I do not understand why his staff cannot keep the station running in his absence. You're right. You are absolutely 100% right. You are at yes. war. Yes, remember? right. Right. And I know it was played for laughs. I get that. But then again, so was one little ship. One little ship was played for laughs, but they are still in the war. Yeah. And they and they're fighting Jem Hadar. So if Chief O'Brien somehow, I don't know, just disappears in the hands of Starfleet intelligence for whatever reason and is away for several weeks, then what happens to the station? I, uh, yes. Thank you. It, like, it, it, yeah, in six years, you'd think there would be a lot more, uh, you know, Federation and Starfleet technology that would work and work well. And you just have people there working on that all the time. Yeah. In six years of engineering, processes would have been in place. Yeah. Diagnostics would have been written down. There would be technical plans that would be in their database for them to be able to fix hybrid yeah. Cardassian and Federation technology. They installed all you those weapons. Think. Yeah. And they have a guy literally who that held off the Dominion for like a year yeah. with his invention. Right, so, right. Exactly. But hey, 
Hey, and you know what? I blame the chief. You know why? That's bad management. It is. See? It is. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Come on, chief. We expect better out of you. Funny, they, they mentioned the fire suppression system in Quark's Bar. Look, I do. I love a dramatically festive drink, but you have to be careful with open flames, it, tiki bars or uh, elsewhere, like Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen in Vegas. I was there when there was an accident. It, it, it was not good. So just, you know, putting that out there. Need to have that fire suppression system working at all times, or you don't serve flaming drinks. Uh, Was it flaming Sambuca? Because those things can go sideways. Yeah, they can go wrong. Yeah, and and I do like you. I I love Worf calling out there. Something wrong with the turbo lift. Like, just say, like, that that is mastery of the craft. We just have a straightforward expositional line, you know, subject, verb, object, and that's... (laughs) He just, he nails it. He's great. Nice little moment there. I like Dax helping him out of the turbo lift. Yeah. Also, let's see. I I love that detailed map painting of the city on Ferris. Very Mm -hmm. cool. And, oh, nice to know that you can get a care package of home-baked goods in the 24th century. Uh, Looked more like a shortbread than a cake to me. Maybe that's why it was dry. Maybe the recipe got confused. I don't know. But, look, I like a good shortbread. Who doesn't? I, I love uh don't do it dude don't do yeah, it. yeah i mean come on come on uh, o'brien <laughs> is, is there any way i can talk to my wife and chadwick says we can't risk it i feel like this is what is said every time in the writer's room that somebody mentions keiko <laughs> they just hey should we write keiko into the scene we can't risk it we just no no we can't do it yeah. I, I didn't want to go there john i didn't want to bring it up mm-hmm. but you know what it's time for oh what was it time for the Wheel of, of Excuses. excuses. Uh, there we go. There we go. Why, why is she not here? Because she's just not. Yeah. Be- oh. Because O'Brien is on a dangerous mission that he has no qualifications for. Uh, so, which is why he can't talk to his wife. Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah. Doesn't even get her name said in the episode. Yeah. Hey, do, do Klingons actually have a low setting? <laughs> because... <laughs> That's that surprised me. Like we have seen various forms of disruptors and phasers absolutely vaporize somebody where there is nothing left at all. And sometimes that looks much more painful than other times. This it was like like a very strong pellet gun to yeah. you know to kneecap the guy. And then it actually going for the kill, but he's still all in one piece. Oh, and, and I did like I liked O'Brien getting the new suit. And then later being defended to the Vorta by Bilby. It, it made me think of Goodfellas. I mean, there's a lot of scenes in this. It made me think of Goodfellas. But it's like, you know, he he's a friend of ours. Friend of mine? Yeah. No, he's a friend of ours. You know? Like, yeah. That, it, was, it was good stuff. Well handled. Like, oh, my God. You look like a gangster. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> Rags to Riches starts playing in the background. Dun, dun, yeah. dun, 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 dun. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so speaking of gangster, right? Mm-hmm. How about that thick wad of money that O'Brien pulls out of his pocket when he pays off the escort just to leave? He's yeah, like, okay, you right? know, it's like, okay, toots here, a couple of bills. You know, you'll be on your way. We'll talk yeah, a little bit later. Yeah. Like, where does that come from? Like, I know. Yeah. I thought we're dealing in like the world of gold press latinum being kind of like the, the gold press latinum standard of currency in this universe. What if, you know, he's so new there and for whatever reason on Farius, it's just like that's the way it is. You, you have paper money and he completely doesn't understand the conversion rate. <laughs> so so either he just handed her like entirely too much like here's a million dollars that he just doesn't understand, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or it's like eight cents and he's still 
I'll hey, give you uh, twenty dollars. Is that a lot? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That was good. Hey, and uh, mention of the vacation on Ryza, and they found mm. the Starfleet guy who could be bought. I wonder, like, is this DS9's way of trying to atone for uh, he who is without sin? That episode curses us. Still terrible. But there it is. Yeah. Like, it's in there. And, of course, they mentioned the weather machine, and that's all you can think of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did, you know, I, I made very short work of it in the recap, but I, I do want to mention that scene with Galanon identifying the traitor among Bilby's men doesn't really work for me. Like, he points at O'Brien, so why does the bartender shoot Flith other than just that he's a bad shot or he's not paying attention? I know that they're trying to build tension in the scene, but it just seems like an unnecessary extra layer to try to build that tension. It's, it's a hat on a hat in this case, and you don't need it. Oh, you, you haven't know? used that in a long time, we a have. hat on the hat. I, I, well, I also like gilding the lily. That is one of, one of my other favorite uh, phrases there. But for that scene, it just felt like, okay, we already have tension. We know that you're building tension. Do you need that one extra little fake out? Like, no, not really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a little ham-handed, I guess. Yeah. I thought you were going to say Gelnon the Lily. I'm like, that's a little bit Oh, man. Oh, what a missed opportunity for me. Ah. Right. Uh, save that. That that should just be a t-shirt. You know, don't don't Gelnon the Lily. Yeah. That's our album for today. <laughs> Gelnon the Lily. Yes. Gelnon the Lily. Yeah. You know, I really, really did like how this episode ended up. And I do love a good cat adoption story. Mm-hmm. So for whatever shortcomings the chief has, you can't hold a grudge against him. For adopting Bilby's cat. Oh, that that's good. But see, I just wonder, because I know that this will carry on. I know that we will learn much more about uh, about Chester as the story goes on. I know that Chester will become an important part of the O'Brien household. So flash forward to Deep Space Nine, episode 252, Keiko comes home. Oh, hi, Miles. So good to see you. I'm sure you missed me and all the kids that you don't know about. How and when did you get a cat? Is there a story around that? And roll credits. Now that he has a cat, just think of all the cat hair we'll be seeing on O'Brien's pants for the rest of the series. We will get back to Honor Among Thieves in just a moment, but first a quick break from this week's sponsors. So, John, did you know that you can use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are available and only available in other countries? Stop it. You're kidding me. What? No. (laughs) I, I think, Norman, I have heard that before. I think not only have I heard that before, but I've done that before. Yes, yes, I'm going to blow your mind. So not only uh, do you and I both enjoy watching things in other countries while we are based here in the U.S., but I did the reverse. When I was in Europe, uh, the last time I was in Europe, I had ExpressVPN. I was able to access my home Netflix account, my U.S. Netflix account, because I was using ExpressVPN. So there I was on a river in Europe streaming movies from back home. And that was just a great way to do it. I absolutely love the flexibility of having ExpressVPN to watch things from all over the world. 
And the way that you do it is that you're you're signed into the ExpressVPN app. You can do that on any of your devices. And then you can change your location so that the site that you're accessing thinks that you're in a different place. Couldn't be easier. Um, you've done it. I've done it. You open up the app. You select a location. You tap one button to connect. Refresh whatever page it is that you're going to. And then, boom, access to all these shows and movies that you otherwise would have thought unreachable. So uh, you can choose from a hundred different countries. Now, I, I know that you and I both, uh, we both enjoy some uh, UK programming, some British programming every now and then. Yes. So like UK yes. Netflix, uh, all the anime films from uh, Studio Ghibli. And uh, you could watch anime on, say, Japanese Netflix or, or a little show called Doctor Who on UK Netflix. You may have heard of that. Some of our listeners may have heard of that one too. Yeah. So uh, this works with any streaming service like you know, Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube. Um, that is why we choose ExpressVPN. Yeah. And while you're doing that, you can stream in HD without any problem. There's not buffering. There's not lag issues. It's compatible with all your devices. So if you're a, a heavy device user, a heavy user on the go, you have your phone, you have your pad, you have your laptop, or if you're a desktop user, it really doesn't matter because it works on all of these devices. And not only does it let you change your location, as John was saying, it also encrypts your data. That's the most important thing because you are traveling and you are using it on the road. So it encrypts your data and lets you surf the web safely and most importantly, anonymously. And what I do love about this, John, you said this before, it has that giant big connect button, whether you're on your phone or on your laptop, or if you're using on an app, like say on my, on my iMac, it's just bang, hit that button and you're connected. So go to expressvpn.com slash mission log to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log. Norbert, you know what my uh, plans are today after we record and after I uh, get some other work, you know, production work done? Uh, sleep. That is my plan. That I, big, big plans for sleep, and I want to be comfortable when I sleep, and that is why I'm going to Helix Sleep. Yes, I, I just used uh, Helix as an adjective for sleep. So Helix Sleep, I, as I've mentioned before, I, I do not a small amount of work for Mission Log and other podcasts while I'm in bed. There are things to watch. There are notes to type up. And uh, yes, you may very often find me late at night laying down with my tablet and watching the next episode of DS9 that we review, or maybe waking up in the morning and grabbing that tablet to read people's comments and interact on Discord. So I do all of that at the absolute height of comfort from John Champion World Headquarters that would be in bed on a Helix Sleep mattress. And you may be asking, how do I know that I got the right mattress? And how can you? Well, it's so easy and you can sleep or work or do whatever it is that you do in bed the same way that I did. You take the Helix Sleep Quiz at helixsleep.com slash mission log. It'll literally take you two minutes to complete the quiz and match your body type and preference to the perfect mattress for you. Everybody is unique. Their sleep styles are different. And Helix knows that. So they have a lot of different mattresses to choose from. Soft, medium, firm. For me, it was a little more firm. I find that I sleep on my back and on my side and honestly all over the place. So they found the right mattress for me. And I love it. 
It is definitely an upgrade over old flimsy mattresses. It seems to spring back into shape. It's soft and comfortable, but also gives me the support that I need. You know, I just came up with a really interesting jingle. Did you? Okay. So I'm going to trademark this. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Mr. Helix, bring me a Mm. dream. Send me a mattress I've never seen. This is good. This is good. Yeah. But let's get back into it. So if you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door shipped for free. You don't even need to go to a mattress store again, which is amazing. Helix is awesome. But don't take my word for it. Don't take John's word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 and by GQ and Wired Magazine. So just go to helixsleep.com slash mission log, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. Five, 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 five. <laughs> they have a 10-year warranty. You, know, you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. And now Helix is offering up to $200 off mattresses, orders, and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash mission log. Thank you to ExpressVPN and Helix Sleep for sponsoring this week's show. All right, Norman, as we get into our discussion, I feel like the discussion is going to be two different tactics here that that maybe we will both try out. Because I I feel like, yes, there are interesting character points to discuss. There are interesting relationships to discuss. I also feel like this episode just raises so many questions. (laughs) I mean, and, and not in the best way necessarily like because you present this very complex and very fleshed out world that deep space nine exists within and let's not also forget that they have fleshed out this complex world that ds9 exists in in a complex world that we have already explored in other star trek you know tng ds9 overlap ds9 is about to overlap with voyager well it already does at this point in our timeline overlap with voyager so it's a big big star trek universe and i feel like when you throw in plot elements because maybe you're chasing a good story you're chasing uh interesting character development sometimes that then has ramifications on the world that you've created And this, for me, is one of those moments. So we've talked about the kind of world that DS9 portrays. This is not the shiny, easy-living federation that we've come to know on the Enterprise-D. That kind of easy comfort Hilton Hotel in space, right? And that's okay. Deep Space Nine is not a Federation station. We know that the Federation and Starfleet has to interact with other cultures that are not a part of the Federation yet. So there are certain allowances they have to make. Okay, we have to deal with Latinum as a value system for goods. You know, we we get that. So these are the, the changes we make in our minds about how Deep Space Nine operates within Star Trek. This episode raises much harder questions about what's happening in other corners of the quadrant. The Orion Syndicate is a problem. We get that. Crime is their business. And apparently, they're just all over the place, and they wield a lot of power. And for a guy like Bilby, 
I'm I'm truly really concerned, and I'm partly concerned because they did a good job of building the relationship between Bilby and O'Brien Connolly. You know, Bilby's a human mm-hmm. being with a family, a family who lives in New Sydney. They're from and they're on Earth. Okay, and Bilby has slipped through the cracks, and the Federation is a place so far where we understand that people have a role. And even if they don't have necessarily a glamorous or adventurous or important role like being on a starship, they have the resources they need. People like Joseph Sisko, who runs a restaurant and takes a great deal of satisfaction from running that restaurant. And these people also benefit from the protection of Starfleet. Now, this gets into a complicated place because I understand that people also have free will. And they have different desires and needs, and you can't necessarily accommodate for every single person's every single wish, and people can make bad choices. But what I'm getting at, Norman and listeners, how does it get this bad? How, you know, we... we're, We're seeing a version of things getting bad here that is this long-form result of somebody who has slipped through the cracks many times, has tried to start a family, he's got us, but he can't even be with them because of what he's doing, and yet the syndicate knows about him, and they're in danger um, implicitly and explicitly. Um, It's a different kind of all-encompassing danger than, say, like uh, uh, Chief O'Brien slipping through the cracks mentally and getting to the point where he was going to take his own life. You know, so mm-hmm. so we, we worry and we wonder about places like this that exist in DS9's world, particularly when they should be under the care and protection of people who not only know better, but can offer better. I guess sometimes uh, when you introduce something as far-reaching as, like, say, the Orion Syndicate, I think the biggest problem so far in Star Trek is that there hasn't really been the definitive playbook for what the Orion Syndicate really is, aside from being a plot device. And when you introduce these types of external forces to characters that that need this type of uh, motivation because of these external forces to make certain choices as the character then you have to have defined reasons why these types of entities exist. The Orion Syndicate is in no small way really analogous to the mob, you know, to the mafia, La Cosa Nostra, to gangsters, and they have that type of gangster-esque code of honor. Mm -hmm. This is why or where this title of the episode comes from, Honor Among Thieves, because there is a code of conduct when it comes to these types of organizations where the organizations come first and that's what keeps everyone towing the line. For somebody like Bilby, I do believe that somewhere along the line that was not addressed in this episode, there was a point in time where he was in some way manipulated by the syndicate or exploited in a way, either through debt or through desperation or through making one bad choice something that forced him into their service, into their servitude, much like an indentured See, that, that's, what's so, that's, that, the, that's what's so hard to figure out. Like, what could that debt possibly be when you come from a planet 
that in the 21st century has all the resources you need. Like that that comes back to the the central question about okay, uh Ramus has contact with uh well the the, the guy in Starfleet who could be bought, you know, the the guy mm-hmm. on Risa who could be bought. Bought with what? Like dude, you're in Starfleet. You have a starship, you have a holodeck, you have replicators, and you can get great Creole food back on Earth. You know, you literally have everything you could possibly need. And I wonder then, like, what is the... Yes, people can make bad decisions. People can accidentally end up in a bad place because they are manipulated. I I, I don't, you know, put that beyond them. I also wondered, like... Is there a situation here where there is something intangible, not just money, even though they're they're basically spelling it out as money, but is there something intangible like power or attention, celebrity? The, this you know we've compared this to Goodfellas already, and it wasn't just about the money; it was about the position that the money brought them and wearing the cool suits and having people respect you when you walk by respect because they're afraid of you, but respect nonetheless. So I'm wondering like, is this exposing something in this 21st century world that is also making people feel incomplete? So well, you can then exploit them again. As an ancestor of mine once said, John, it's like, uh, if you take away the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So let's take a look at the Federation, okay. and let's take a look at what we understand of the Federation here, yeah. because that's really kind of like the dynamic that we're, we're working with, is that if the Federation is supposed to supply the means and needs of being able to sustain a very normal, very well-cared-for, curated life, then if you take away what they provide— what can be exploited? So if you take away money, we don't need that. We don't need career. We don't need any real want or desire when it comes to this post-scarcity economic yeah. world. So what is left? Reputation, family, things that can't be replicated, things that can't be replaced. And I think that that's where Billby is coming from because every single very poignant time in this episode where he brings up family, it really means something to him. Friendship means something to him. Loyalty means something to him. Things that cannot be bought, things that cannot be replicated. So what if the syndicate really just has their gun sights on his family the entire time? Mm. So if you step out of line... They are eliminated. That's the only reason why he would put himself at risk. And maybe, just maybe, because of what happened to him at the end, he has the window of opportunity to let them go, to free yeah. them from this this existential threat that is the Orion Syndicate always using them as leverage against him. It, there's a tragedy to that, though, and that's that, you know— it might be this very pie in the sky look at Star Trek, but Star Trek is aspirational science fiction. It is science fiction about the future that we say that we want. And it still will keep me up at night to think that there's a guy in that perfect future who can't then rely on the others, rely on the resources that are offered to him to get out of that. You know, I, we, we want to think about Bilby and his family like, yeah, they'll be okay. Of course, you don't have the story if you do that. But the Federation, you know, it's unfair for me to try to compare 
this series to another series or this captain to another captain. This is the captain's call here. But for whatever reason, things have gotten so out of hand with this particular mission for Starfleet that people are dying undercover and they can't protect the people who need the protection. Or it's very well possible that we are putting Starfleet or the Federation too high up on a pedestal for us to believe that they can protect the welfare of all of their citizens, whether or not they want it. I think that's one of the things that we have to take into consideration here as we factor all of these things. Because we do believe that at one point in time, our understanding of the Federation and of Starfleet or and of Starfleet is this is this blanket of protectivism and utopian society and bettering ourselves and moving past all of kind of like these uh, the, these fra- uh, frailties, these foibles that make us human that we have learned to shed over the course of World War III, the eugenics mm-hmm. wars, things of that nature that almost made us extinct. Yeah, But if there's one thing that rings true, and it goes all the way back to the original series, if there's one thing that rings true is that humanity still inhabits certain nefarious characteristics that have not yet been eliminated. Say, for example, Lieutenant Stiles on the bridge with bigotry in his heart towards Spock. If we believe that that's true, that means that humanity is still flawed. If humanity is still flawed, therefore, someone like Bilby can become part of this organization because either one of two things happened. He sought after it for that type of attention-seeking or fame or fortune, or maybe he did it at the start, but he realized that this is not the situation he wanted to be in, but it's too late. And maybe that is where he sees O'Brien. He's like, you know what? I'm glad that you're getting out. I'm glad you told me what you told me. It breaks my heart because I thought it was a good judge of character, but at least you're not going to go down the same road that I went down. And when he asked him if he had a family at the end, and he said that family is the most important thing, it was almost a cautionary tale, yeah. a little bit of a heated yeah. warning saying like, don't go down that road that loses your family. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I really thought that that was a very powerful statement. At the I, end. I totally agree. What else you got? Well, if I can just extrapolate on that, if I may quote Don Vito Corleone from The Godfather, (laughs) the very opening scene, well, not the very opening scene, but minutes later when he's uh, advising Johnny Fontaine, we all know who Johnny Fontaine is. (laughs) Yes, we do. You know, he says, a man who does, he goes, a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man, you know, which is true, which is true. And that's true in Bilby's case, I should say, because everything that he does, the money that he makes, the protection that he gets, all of the luxuries that are afforded him go to his family. And anytime he gets somewhere in the realm of stepping out of line, even in the slightest detail, Ramus, all he has to do is say, give my best to your family. Mm-hmm. That is the veiledest of threats yeah. when he says that. And then you could see that. And um, Nick Tate, the good enough uh, actor to pull that off, he's like, I get like, you know, the hard swallow. Mm-hmm. Oh. I get what you mean. I understand. I get it. So he repeats this line. Bilby repeats the line many times throughout the course of this episode because he's a man that can't go home. He knows that. He's given that up to protect his family, to provide for them. And I really wish, I really wish that 
this episode addressed more of these nuanced character issues between O'Brien and Bilby because they're both family men operating from different sides of the spectrum. And I wish that in some way that the Section 31-ish agent Mm -hmm. was leaning on O'Brien with something that maybe was an issue with Keiko or something that she had, Hmm. she, you know, she was on one of her excursions and she, I don't know, stepped over a diplomatic Mm -hmm. line and Hey, you know what? We'll erase that from her. This is what makes section 31 Mm -hmm. interesting and nefarious at the same time. We'll erase that from her permanent record. Mm -hmm. If you do this for us, that's what was missing. We needed the leverage over O'Brien and that leverage would parallel what Bilby has already suffered from the hands of the Orion Syndicate. Therefore, the Orion Syndicate and this clandestine Starfleet intelligence agency that's been introduced are similar in such mm. respects. And that makes everything a little bit darker in Deep Space Nine, which it lends itself to, is that the Federation isn't always squeaky clean. And we know sure. that. But it needs to be explored a little bit more. And I think that really would have benefited the episode. Interesting. Interesting idea. I, I go back to what you were saying about family. And, and I think that's the, the conundrum here is that, yes, you know, Bilby cares deeply about his family. He got himself into this position, presumably to provide for his family. But that is the threat to his family. But it's incomplete. He's not there. So he he Mm -hmm. says that he has this thing, but in reality, he doesn't because they don't have him and he doesn't have them. They they exist as a picture and as an idea. So he's, you know, look, we don't need to do a podcast to tell you crime doesn't pay. But, but, you know, that's... Listen yeah, here, I know, Timmy. right? Yeah. There, there's your, you see, Timmy. (laughs) But but that really is like the, the tragedy of his life. He's chasing this utterly impossible thing because it doesn't it cannot exist for him the the way this is set up so it it's it's sad that he's manipulated to that point but it's an idea john and if there's one thing that we've learned throughout the course of the last couple weeks is that you cannot destroy an idea was there a message to this story or was it just making us an offer we can't refuse Well, we've been sized up. We have our new suits, shiny as they may be. We have a lot of cash in our pockets. But here's the most important thing. What did this episode do for us? What did it do for the series? And does this withstand the test of time? And no matter how you answer it, we're going to break your legs afterwards. So (laughs) you better tell us that our cake tastes fresh. Lie to us. Everyone else does. There you go. Um, Well, I tell you, I I will tell no lies here, Norman, my feelings about this episode. It is a strange step for DS9, but in a good way. To me, there's a real sense of mood and character. It's a story set in a criminal world, but the the driving force is the story about human qualities, like loyalty and compassion. And Colomini got some great stuff to do. He really does. Like they, they, they gave him terrific opportunities, and surely, yes, the O'Brien character has gone to some far extremes, you know. But but this was a a very heartfelt performance. I thought something else that I like about this episode, and that is the lack of technology. So yes, there are gadgets. You you got disruptors, and you you got the little neck thing, you know. 
But those things aren't integral to the plot. They don't solve the plot. You could replace the disruptors with guns and you get the same story. So there's no technology aha moment to solve a situation or reveal O'Brien's identity. You know, it's not like, oh, well, we you know, got a DNA sample from me and we ran this and we figured this out. And are you really who you, who you say you are? You know, it, there was none of that. So the story actually plays out because of the character's motivations. You know, uh, uh, Bilby believes O'Brien is Connolly because he believes in Connolly. And in the reverse, O'Brien's relationship with Bilby, he he loves him, trusts him as a friend, because they developed that. It, it wasn't like you just had to drop a technological uh, situation between them. So I, I like that. And I see where you could actually chalk that up as a negative for this episode and say, well, it just plays out like any given episode of a you know police drama where the guy goes undercover and actually forms a bond with his target. But that's okay to me. I, I do wonder, and we've come back to this, uh, especially with a show like One Little Ship, why are we telling this story here? Why are we telling this story now when it seems so out of step with the rest of DS9, particularly in this season and coming at the end of uh, season five, when we really are like pushing forward into six with this big arc about uh, the Dominion? This episode plays out like Chief O'Brien fan fiction. But, hmm. but that is not a disparaging remark for me. It's really good fan fiction in that respect. Like, it's all about him. We get to tell this side story and then presumably come back to the, the regular story. But hmm. I, it, it was nice to have that diversion. You just wonder, why are we getting that diversion? So hmm. to me, I, I actually think this episode is fine. It's just a strange diversion from the rest of DS9 that we're getting now. Uh, how about you, Norman? Well, I mean, I guess it does it hold up as a Star Trek episode then? Hmm. I Probably irrelevant as a Star Trek episode. Honestly, it, it, it is a Chief O'Brien episode. Yeah. It, it, but... Um, We'll find out what the morals, meanings, messages are in a moment, if there are any. But, um, yeah, does it have something really great to say about the future or about Star Trek's philosophy of humanity? Maybe not. So let, 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 let's I come to that, though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of kind of the, the lens. I mean, that, that is our mission statement for Mission Log. It's that we have to put, you know, our, our final conclusions through these, uh, you know, I don't want to say checklists, but our, our understanding of how this fits in the greater Star Trek universe. And, and for me, this episode really doesn't because it is just very much of a paint-by-numbers procedural police-type episode that doesn't really have any Star Trek narrative ideals and qualities. But it's worth watching because Nick Tate is amazing as Bill. He's so good. Yes. He's so, yeah. I mean, he's like magnetic. He's very, very engaging to watch. You want to see where this character goes. He's very earnest. He's very sincere. You believe in his motivations. And I believe that he really didn't have any issues working as this, you know, quote unquote, this like lower capo, this lower level enforcer of the Orion Syndicate. Mm -hmm. 
It's not like he reveled in it like a sociopath would. It's not like he was a, a murderous psychopath that looked for any reason to take out any target or to complete any mission. He was just a man who knew that this was a means to an end. And the end was to provide for his family. But he also didn't want to cross Ramus and the syndicate either because that would end him, therefore ending his, or thereby ending his ability to support his family. So he was in this very vicious circle, this endless cycle of, of danger if he doesn't perform mm. the way that he needs to perform. But he doesn't really necessarily enjoy it. And I love this whole kind of like tightrope walk, tight rope walk that he has between legitimate and criminal enterprises because he has this personal code with family. Family is everything. And it keeps him focused on doing the right thing for the right people. And the right people not being the Orion Syndicate, the right people being his wife and his children. Because that's what he is... I think that's what he's convinced himself to believe. But in this episode, there are just too many contrivances mm. for me. There's no reason. And this is what kills me, is that there's no reason why O'Brien needs to be where he is at the beginning of this episode. Not one. <laughs> no, there isn't. Not one. <laughs> there isn't. And yeah. that is like storytelling no-no 101. You have to give a reason for your character to be put in a dangerous, life-threatening situation. You have to either, he either has to be a, have been coerced into it or blackmailed into it or pressured into it or some reason, but there's no reason. And that gives him zero motivation to do exactly what he did. Why was he risking himself for Chadwick? There was no reason. Yeah. Which gives a lot of his character's motivations very hollow pursuits because O'Brien could have just said, you know what? I don't feel like it. I'm going to leave. And he has every right sure. to. Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So that really makes the entirety of this episode, with the exception of Nick Tate Spilby, very two-dimensional because you really just don't care if O'Brien just walked off the situation or not. Yeah. I See, I, I, I love this because, you know, last week we had this lighthearted two-dimensional romp that I did not care for. But you absolutely did. Here we are with a not lighthearted two-dimensional romp uh, that I actually like and, and you don't. And, and I'm glad that we have arrived at that place where we have uh, this interesting interchange. But what I want to know, what I want to know, Norman, is did you get any morals, meanings, messages out of this episode? Aside from stating the obvious, which not only you have stated, I have stated, but Bilby states throughout the entirety of this episode <laughs> – I was entertained by this episode, but I didn't really feel that there was a quote-unquote true Star Trek moral or meaning or message that I could mine from this episode, aside from something that I do believe in, is that there is nothing more important than family. But it's a very generic and very ubiquitous moral axiom that can be applied to any fandom, really, if you tell the story right. And... That's not what we do for Mission Log. That's not what we are looking for in a Star Trek episode. So I really wanted to buy into O'Brien's moral conflict and try and find a message there. I did not. I tried to find the meaning of what honor meant amongst these thieves, and I really didn't, not from a morals meanings perspective. Mm. So I wanted everything to be pushed somehow a little bit further so that an actual moral or meaning or message could have risen to the top. 
I don't really have any problems with the episode. It's just that it's not Star Trek. And I know that you're going to send a letter saying that if it has Star Trek in the title, then it is Star Trek. I get that. I am not naive. I understand that that is a fact. But you can tell this story in so many different science fiction shows of its era, of of Deep Space Nine's era in the late 90s, like Babylon 5, Andromeda later on, Farscape, and yes, I will say it, Cleopatra 2525, because... It's not a great show, but you can tell the story in that show. Stargate, etc., etc. So if it's not as prevalent in the in the overall triple watching that we have done or more of this episode, then I don't really don't think there was one in there. Hmm. Interesting. So my my take on this is that I, I do think that they are trying to depict something that is humanistic and sympathetic. Um, at the core of this show. It, it is all about that relationship between uh, O'Brien and Bilby. And um, I, I just wish, though, that it wasn't solely O'Brien and Bilby who are displaying these character traits because, because this is a big missing part of this puzzle here. Chadwick should have had those same qualities, and he doesn't. And that hurts it when, when we're trying to get to a place of a moral meaning message. You know, the point of the relationship that develops is that people aren't beyond redemption. Just because bad circumstances lead to bad choices doesn't mean that there isn't some shred of decency that should be respected and helped at all costs. When we stop seeing people as black and white caricatures, you know, just purely as a uh, as a means to whatever the outcome is going to be, because that's how Chadwick sees Bilby, well, we actually start seeing the humanity and then we might actually be able to help. But again, Chadwick doesn't learn that and he needs to because that's how we do better. And I wanted to bring up something, John, that I'm glad you touched on this. Because Chadwick is Starfleet. Mm-hmm. He's Starfleet intelligence, but he's still Starfleet, which means that when he says, I don't care what happens to Bilby, he chose his life. He chose his future. Whatever happens, happens. We have no part in it. What does that say about Starfleet yeah. in this era of Star Trek? Starfleet's our best and brightest, right? And it's our best and brightest who also operate with compassion. And I want a Chadwick or somebody better than Chadwick to come along and say, no, we actually have to help the people who need help. It's not good enough just to say like, well, somebody's going to die. Glad it's not me. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, change of heart. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers. Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, and Mike Schabel. Spin-off idea, Chester and the Chief, a sitcom about a man, a cat, and Jeffrey's tubes, hey CBS, 
Have your people call my people. End transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.